morning, Chapel Hill. I'm Pastor Mark, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the celebration of World Communion Sunday. For those of you who are in-house and for those of you who are worshiping from your house, I offer the same warm greetings. I want to begin my message this morning in a little different way. I would like to call us to a time of prayer for our president, the first lady, and those in our nation who have been struck down by this virus. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, you uh, in in joined us to pray for our leaders, and in obedience to that, and with a compassionate heart, we lift up our president, President Trump, and pray for his healing from this coronavirus. We pray the same thing for the First Lady, and for the others in government who have, are in his circle and have been struck by this horrible disease. Lord, they join millions of others who have been stricken in this way, and in the same way as we've lifted up others, we particularly lift them up to you. Father, I also thank you for at least a whisper, a breath of decency, of compassion, of kindness that we have felt blowing across our nation in these last few days. As some of those who might count themselves political opponents, maybe even enemies of the president, nevertheless have offered up prayers, spoken words of compassion and human decency. Lord, it is so refreshing in a time when the level of contempt seems so high, to see at least some rise above all of that and express this basic human compassion of sympathy. I pray that it might uh, touch the rest of the way that we are talking to each other in this season, that there, it might inject some sweetness into our dialogue and into our relationships one with another. We ask all of this in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. I have some other COVID-related news for you this morning, and this is, uh, this is a way more positive news. Uh, the good news is that our in-person worship services have continued to grow and grow and grow in our numbers. As people are returning, and those of you who are here know that, you are discovering the, uh, the lengths to which we are going to ensure that we provide as safe an environment as possible. And I see you all wearing your masks and sitting socially distant, and so I appreciate that very much. And I think as people take the chance to come back and to, uh, to begin to worship again, they discover that. Even more, I think that they are rediscovering the power that comes from worshiping with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm so glad that this is available to those who have to remain home, have to be cautious, but boy, there's just nothing like being able to be together, am I right? And, and to sing together and to pray together and to, to love the Lord together. So uh, we invite you to come back. And the good news is that more and more people have uh, been coming back, and because of the size restrictions that have been imposed upon us by the governor, we need to add a third service. And so we are going to have three services on Sunday mornings, and the new service times are going to be as follows. There will be a classic service at 8.30, and then the two modern services will be at 10 and 11.30, 10 and 11.30. I'm going to need a commitment from a bunch of you, about 125 of you, to, to commit to that 11.30 service, and I'm hoping that the high schoolers, who are my great bastion of worshipers right over in this corner, and who wouldn't mind getting an extra hour of sleep on Sunday morning, I hope you will lead the way, guys, and bring your parents along. We are going to kick this off on the 18th of October, and so there will be three services, and I realize that this represents one more change in a season that has been full of change, but we are trying to adjust and adapt and deal with this, and the good news is this. 
Whereas there are literally thousands of churches around the country and even many, many churches within our own state that are not yet meeting in person, by God's grace, we need to add another service to meet the demand for all the people who want to worship God together. So that is a cause to celebrate. And I know I can count on you to have that wonderful uh, sweetheart church attitude and agree that a 30-minute shift in your time is not too great a price to pay so that we might make more room for more people who long to come and to worship God with their church family. And above all, through all of this, I want you to remember the number one Chapel Hill rule, which is no whining. whining. That's right, no, no whining. As I start my message this morning, I want to show you a picture. Uh, I wonder if you recognize what you're looking at up there. Yes, even if you're not a hiker or a climber, you certainly recognize this iconic peak, Half Dome, in Yosemite National Park down in California. It is one of the most recognizable mountain peaks in the world. Um, the face of that mountain, as you're looking at that, that is, that's for, uh, for expert climbers, uh, it is pretty darn sheer and frightening. But you may not know that if you go around from the other side, you can actually make your way up to the top of Half Dome using a set of uh, cables that are fixed into the side of the mountain. You see a picture of it uh, right now. And it is not as daunting as that face, although it's still pretty exciting, especially if you don't like heights very much. But I have been up that, uh, those cables many times because I used to take our high school groups uh, on trips every summer to climb Half Dome. And it was normally a three-day trip, so we would hike up to Little Yosemite Valley above Nevada Falls, and then the next day we would make the climb and then return to camp, and then the third day we came back down to the, to the valley floor. But there's a, a group of intrepid souls who make that 17-mile, 4,800-feet elevation gain hike in one day, from the valley floor up and back down in one day, 17 miles. And there's always something I wanted to try. So one summer not too long ago, a group of my friends and I gave it a go. And in fact, we made it to the top. But it turns out you need a lot of water to make that hike. In the middle of the summer, 4,800 feet of gain, 17 miles long, and I did not bring enough water, not even close. Nor did I bring a filter that could have filtered the Merced River, which was available. Nor did I break out my iodine tablets, which I had in my pack but didn't seem to want to use. And as a consequence, about halfway back, I nearly collapsed. I was so utterly spent that I had to stop. I was kind of dizzy. I was exhausted and dehydrated, and I, I just plopped down right in the dust of the trail. Other climbers who were there saw me and came over. They offered water to me and ministered to me very graciously, but I still had another four miles to go to get to the valley floor, and I, I really wondered. It was one of those rare times where I wondered if I was going to make it. Uh, of course, the option was what? Steep, keep sitting in the dust halfway up the mountain? I mean, I really didn't have any choice. And so I got up and I dragged my carcass down to the valley floor because I had to keep going. But it was not pleasant. When Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, I think he might have felt a lot of the same way that I felt that day on the mountain. He was utterly spent Paul had endured terrible persecution. 
That enough was bad, but even more painful perhaps, he had experienced a deep rejection from the Corinthian Christians, people to whom he had ministered for two years of his life. Some of the people in Corinth were claiming that Paul's sufferings, his persecution, was proof that he wasn't a real good Christian. That in other words, if you suffer, if you're a Christian who suffers or struggles, then you aren't a real Christian. There's heresies that continue to teach that to this day. And part of the reason that Paul responded with this letter to called the 2 Corinthians, was to combat that horrible teaching that says Christians don't ever struggle or suffer. It is just not true. And it was also to restore his relationship with these people that he had given his life and his heart to. I want to remind you of, of some of Paul's heartbreaking words describing what he had gone through as we find it in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. Paul writes this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. I really want to remind you again, this is the great apostle Paul. And yet he was saying, I didn't even want to live anymore. I despaired of life. And he was, I think, taking a great risk by admitting that to the Corinthians, especially since there are people who were saying, that proves you, know, you don't have enough faith. We're in the middle of a series that we are based upon, basing upon the first half of this book of Corinthians called Behind the Mask, Getting Real. And in it, we're allowing Paul to ask us to, to have the courage to take off our metaphorical spiritual mask, take them off and reveal who we really are underneath there. Not what we pretend to be, but what are we really underneath? What should we, as followers of Christ, empowered by His Spirit, what should be the qualities of our lives? And one of the qualities that defines genuine Christian faith is found in verse 1 of chapter 4, which is our text this morning. It may be the shortest text I've ever preached from, because it's not even an entire verse. It's only a few pages of the verse. And here's what it says. Even in times of crisis, even in times of pain, even in times of abandonment or despair, we do not lose heart. Would you say those five words with me, please? We do not lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Holy Spirit, speak to us now. Help us not to lose heart. Even in times that are hard and painful, we pray that these words would become a reality for us in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you watched the presidential debates this week? How many couldn't make it all the way through them? I, I turned it off after about 15 minutes because it was all I could take. Honestly, I was kind of disgusted that the two major party candidates for the most powerful office in the world had resorted to playground name-calling. And it wasn't the first time that I felt disheartened uh, about the state of politics and about the, the discourse within our country. We don't just disagree with each other politically. We despise each other. And at this point, each side is saying, and I'm sure believes, that if the other guy wins, our nation will never be the same. 
And I'll admit there are times when I find myself falling into that too. And I suppose it's possible, although I think our republic is pretty darned resilient. But even if it is true, I want to ask this. Does our hope for our future really depend upon who holds the White House? This nasty election, it seems like a perfect way to wrap up what has been a pretty nasty year. And we have taken a lot of body blows. And it would be an understandable response at this point in the game to say, I'm done. I give up. I've lost hope. I've lost heart. And the apostle Paul would say, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Christians do not do that. We do not lose heart. The English phrase there is actually one word, one single Greek word, and it might also be translated, we are not discouraged, or we do not lose our enthusiasm, or most clearly, we do not give up. That's what that phrase means. We do not give up. And Paul uses this verse, this word, this phrase, twice in this same chapter. Once in, chapter, in verse 1, and again in verse 16, he says it twice. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. They are bookends to a section in which Paul describes some of his pain. He says, I was afflicted in every way. He said, I was perplexed. I was persecuted. I was struck down. And on either end of those powerful statements of pain, he says, but we do not lose heart. He felt like he was trapped. He felt like his pain, there was no way out for him. Trapped. Boy, can I relate. The other day I was doing some yard work at a friend's house and I needed to close the garage door. It's one of those doors that has segments to it, like most of our garage doors have. They, they fold down and then they slide down the front. This garage door wouldn't close very easily, and it didn't have an automatic opener. And so in order to get the thing started, I reached my left hand up to the crack at the top between two of those sections, and I gave it a pull. And Suddenly, those sections closed down on my fingers, and the door just kept going down and down. And I was trapped, and I was in agony, and there was no one to help me. Before the, the door closed, I reached down and grabbed the bottom, and then I slid the thing back up until finally the jaws of death up opened up, and, and I got my hand out. It was, it, that did not tickle. I am telling you, that hurt. I still got dents uh, in in my fingernails, as a matter of fact. Paul, I think, is saying something about that in his own suffering. He felt trapped. He felt like he could not get out. And yet he says, on either end of that description of, his moment, of this moment in his life, he says, but we do not lose heart. Now let me ask you this. When would you say something like that? We, we do not lose heart. We do not get discouraged. We do not give up. When do you say such words? When things are going well? When you feel like you could go on forever? When you're flying high and feeling great? No, these are the words you speak when you feel trapped, when you are losing heart, when you are feeling discouraged, when you do want to give up. That's when you say these words. 
In other words, this phrase, this is the sort of thing you say. It's less a, a statement of how you're actually feeling and more an affirmation of what you still know to be true in spite of the way you're feeling. We speak words of faith against our feelings of doubt. We speak life into death. We speak hope into despair. We speak victory into defeat. This is holy self-talk that boosts our flagging spirits. And especially in hard times, this is a conversation that you need to have with yourself regularly. I was talking with a friend this week and about this text and this idea. And he said, you know, you need to have a sales meeting with yourself every morning. I thought that is so true, isn't it? You need to have a good talking to, a sales meeting, pumping yourself up every morning when you're down. You need to declare to yourself and to others and to God over and over again, I do not lose heart. I do not give up. And before you accuse me of positive thinking mumbo-jumbo, I will remind you that it is King David who taught us how to do this. And he did it in the Psalms. In many of his Psalms, he would first of all confess to the Lord how abandoned and hopeless and despairing and alone he felt. But then in almost every instance, he would end by offering affirmations of hope in the Lord. Like in Psalm 42, he, he gave himself a good talking to. Listen to this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? See that? It's not a prayer. He's talking to his own soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He's telling himself. He's telling his own spirit. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. You see that? Thursday was a rough day for me, and the details don't matter. But in a season when I feel like I have been managing, leading from crisis to crisis, I found myself facing another hard challenge. And honestly, it felt like one more gut punch. And I sent Cindy, my wife, a text saying, you won't believe it. And then I went right into a, a meeting, uh, another meeting. Well, she calls me immediately on my phone. And so I texted and said, I can't talk right now. <laughs> and she texted back and said, you can't send me a text that said <laughs> like that and then tell me that you can't talk to me. <laughs> and of course, she was right. And it was mean. But there are just times, brothers and sisters, when you want to throw your hands up and walk away, aren't there? There are just times when you want to... I'm, I'm done. But then I, I remembered the very words that I'm preaching to you this weekend. We do not lose heart. We do not give up. Our life group was talking about this passage on Friday, and one of the men said, our family had a motto. Actually, it was my mother's motto, but it became our motto. He says, here, here it is, the Isbels, Isbels never quit. Isbel's never quit. Every time we faced a challenge, he said, mom would say, Isbel's never quit. You got to eat an elephant, you eat it one bite at a time, but Isbel's never quit. I think Paul would have loved that motto. I think he would say the same about Christians. Christians never quit. Not because we are so tough, not because we're better than anyone else, but because the spirit of Christ lives within us. 
And when we listen to that soft, persistent internal voice and ignore the harsh clamor of the world out there, we hear him reminding us, do not give up. Do not lose heart. I am with you. Do not be afraid of the world. I have overcome the world. I am greater than the ruler of this world. And you are mine, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. So do not lose heart, says Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. We have a Savior. We have a Savior who understands the temptation to give up and to run away. We have a Savior who understands the temptation to lose heart. Because when Jesus knelt in Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, knowing the horrors that awaited him, he cried out to his Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want to drink it. It is too bitter. But he did drink it, didn't he? He drank it to the dregs. The Lord Jesus did not lose heart. The Lord Jesus did not give up. And his victory at the cross and at the tomb and out of the tomb makes it possible for these words to be more than raw, raw, positive thinking. These words have Holy Spirit power. And we need to remember them and repeat them as a proclamation of faith every time we are tempted to give up. We do not lose heart. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would instill that truth in us, that you would make us brave, make us courageous, make us resilient in this season when it would be so tempting to toss it in, to throw in the towel, to just wash our hands of all of it and walk away. God, we pray that you would continue to reinforce and re-encourage us every single day. And we, we declare with the Apostle Paul, even in a time of pandemic and sadness and uncertainty, we declare we do not lose heart. We do not give up. And we thank you for the model of that in your son Jesus who was tempted to give up at the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness, who was tempted to give up at the end of his ministry in Gethsemane and at so many other points along the way, how easy it might have been for him to say, I am done. But he did not give up. And he finished his journey all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, all the way to glory. And so we who have that same spirit living within us, we can find the power and the strength to do the same thing. And so by faith we speak these words. We do not lose heart.